This episode is made possible by our partners Convert.com, Online Dialogue, Sidespect, Online Influence Institute, Content Square en VWO. My name is Gide Janssen and welcome to the Shirok Fay podcast. Today I talk with Merit Aho, Optimization Director at Search Discovery. And we're going to learn how you can responsibly peek at your data mid-experiment and why we think machines won't be replacing zeros anytime soon. In case you missed the previous episode, uh, last time I spoke with Derek Gleason from CXL about their yearly survey on all things zero, like salaries and the tools that we use. You can listen to that episode on www.zero.cafe or in the podcast app you're listening with right now. Welcome to season two, episode 49. So, Merit, uh, thank you so much for joining the, the Shirok Fate podcast. And first, of course, we'd like to know a bit more about you. So uh, could you enlighten us to start with, why are you still working in Zero? Yeah, and that's a, the, the key word there is still, right? Um, <laughs> because it's been about 10 years for me. Um, you know, I, I think I go back to when I got into CRO and um, I stumbled my way into it, actually, in, in, when I was in, in college doing a graduate degree. Um, but what I immediately loved about it was the, the, the breadth of demand of skills that went into CRO, right? Like there's the analysis part of things. Um, there's the technical part of things and the coding, there's the statistics part of things. There's the creativity part of things, right. And what you're presenting to people and how you're solving problems. And, uh, and there's the visual and design part of things. And then all of that gets, gets, uh, you know, the, the, the method by which that happens is you have to be good at project management and sort of business skills. And um, not only is all of that relevant to CRO, but it rewards you if you're good at, you know, have some breadth in all of those things. So I've always been a little bit of a jack of all trades. I don't have yeah. formal training in any of those things, <laughs> uh, but I have a lot of interest in all of them. That's interesting about uh, many people calling themselves zero specialists, right? It should be zero generalist. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd make a terrible uh, statistician, a terrible developer, a terrible designer, uh, and probably a terrible general business person. But you put all those things together and I've got, I'm just dangerous enough in all of them to, I think, be, be decent <laughs> at my job. Yeah. And um, well, you're still working in it. So do you expect in 10 years we will have the same conversation? You're still working in zero. Do you think uh, things have changed? Not necessarily for you personally, but in, in the, the, the field, what zero means? I don't know. I think they may kick me out by then. I mean, what I just said about the what makes the field really interesting to me and like the diversity of skills and challenges, those challenges continue. But I... I honestly think it'd be hard for someone to follow that pathway today and be sort of a generalist. I think as um, I think as experimentation becomes a bigger part of the DNA of organizations that it will require a more specialization, right? Cause, cause more people will have like the general knowledge of how to do things and you'll just need people who are really good at one particular thing. That's kind of my, if I look uh, into the future, that's what I'm seeing. Yeah, exactly. And to give people some context, uh, your optimization director at uh, Search Discovery, uh, what do you do? That's a great question. <laughs> I wish I could say. What, I, what do you say at parties uh, when people ask you what yeah. you do? When, they, when you have a family reunion, what do you do, Merit? Yeah. 
actually one of my favorite things to ask uh, my family is, what do you guys think I do for a living? And you get all sorts <laughs> of answers from um, uh, make stuff online, design. People think I design websites. I don't design websites. Um, no, I, I tell people that I run experiments on people who don't know they're getting experiments run on them um, on the internet when they visit websites and applications. Um, but, you know, on a day-to-day basis, my job is working with clients um, mainly to set up and operate optimization programs. Um, so that sometimes that involves executing experiments, not nearly as much as I would like, because I think that's the really fun part of the job. Uh, a lot of the times it's just, um, you know, working with organizations to figure out how to set up the capability inside their uh, their organization. Sometimes it's just troubleshooting or support in some ways or office hours. Um, but there's a little bit of everything. Uh, no, no day, no two days are the same. Yeah. And one of the things you've been working on uh, lately is uh, building an, uh, an AB test calculator. Um, please tell us why we should be using yours and all the, all the others. <laughs> you're, you're not the only one with an AB test calculator. Let's be fair. So why, why did you feel this urge to build your own? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I don't care if you use mine. You made it to scratch your own edge. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty darn sure I'm the number one user of my own calculator here. So uh, I, you can, you can, I can tell you who I built it for. Yeah. Um, no, I, you know, I've been using calculators that have been free and available online for years. Um, and I rely on them to do my job effectively. And um, there are some great, resources out there. And I mean, and the list of resources only grows. Um, so I'm not trying to do all and be all to, uh, to everyone's needs, but I, I will say, you know, sequential testing, and I don't know if you, how deeply you want to get into this, but, um, it was something that I actually just started out wanting to understand at a deeper level, right. To, to get the statistics a little bit better. Um, I'd used a number of calculators out there. I was I have front row seat to an Optimizely went to a sequential stats engines um, is how they framed it. Um, I've been a user of the analytics toolkit.com um, resources and, and the, the agile calculator that Yorgi built there. I've used Evan Miller, Miller's um, sequential, yep. simple sequential calculator, but you know, all of those, I wanted to understand a little more and I wanted to kind of be able to self-serve. Um, so I got into this and, you know, I think to my knowledge, this is, this is the only one that, uh, that is free and could be called kind of robust out there today. So, uh, I'm sure that won't last for long, but, um, but right now I think it's a unique resource and, and uh, you know, like I said, I use it all the time. So for, for those that are not familiar, what is uh, specific about se sequential AB testing? Right. So If you're anything like me, at some point you heard you can't peek on your tests. And that was a revelation to me the first time I heard it because I was peeking on my tests because the testing <laughs> we, we tools that I was using, yeah, they encourage us to do it, right? Even today, like some of the biggest testing tools out there are showing you stats that aren't valid um, because they're showing you they're, they're, they're running the test constantly every time you look at it. Um, And so that's peaking. 
that's not how uh, how uh, fixed horizon testing works, which is the breed of testing that most of us use. Uh, the alternative of that would be Bayesian testing, but I I, I I don't have the wits to go down that road, and neither do I have the you know the stamina for it today. But um, you know, in the testing that most of us are used to, you you create a sample size uh, plan, and you're supposed to stick to that sample size. You're supposed to not look at the results, yeah. uh, at least not calculate a statistical. Uh, result until you collect the full sample size. So by peaking, you increase your error rate, your type one error rate. Um, and that's a problem. And even, even peaking, say like every 10% of your sample size, um, you may go from like a 90%, sorry, a 10% uh, type one error rate to a 30% type one error rate over the course of your test. Yeah. And that's with a, you know, a flat result. Um, so yeah, so peaking is is bad, uh, and sequential testing basically allows you to peak responsibly. Uh, it allows you to to guarantee that you maintain that type one error rate as you go through a test and um, and look at the results. Yeah. And, and I like to say that like it's it's useful. Peaking is useful in the face of extreme results. Um, MDE minimum detectable effect you know, minimum effective interest, whatever, that is the thing we don't know much about before we run yeah. a test. But what you need to, to calculate your sample size. Yes, yes, we've created this whole <laughs> test design around this thing that we know so little about. Yeah. If there's one thing we learn in testing, it's that we have no freaking clue what the outcome of something is going to be. We don't know if it's going to be good or bad or, you know, really good. Or, and, and the most surprising results are the, where is where testing becomes most valuable. So, yeah, so acknowledging that that's like the hardest thing to predict and then giving yourself a tool to run an efficient test, regardless of what that thing is, what that impact is, that's, uh, that's why sequential testing is really valuable. Yeah. Yeah, I had the exact same uh, or the exact case the, today actually, um, uh, where where um, um, they wanted to test uh, three or four variants uh, of a, of a promotion on the website. And normally, when you see promotions on the website, their default was okay. You can get this 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 amount of discounts, uh, but only when you order this uh, from this amount. Like you can get twenty five percent discount, but only if you order. 50 euros or over uh, 100 euros and that's the default and um, wanted to test uh, one of the variants was okay you get this discount period without any requirements of minimum order value and uh, the, the team the local team said um, well this is very risky <laughs> uh, we, we can do the test but um, maybe let's do it only at one percent of the uh, number of visitors of course, I'm like, okay, but then the test is going to run <laughs> forever. <laughs> we don't have the sample size to pull that off. So we need to do it um, uh, equal split. Uh, but then they, they come with the requirements say, okay, but then then we need to have some stopping measures in place. Uh, I mean, we, we want to run the test for four weeks, but after one week, we already find out, okay, this is going very extremely in a negative way. We need to be able to stop this. So... This is a perfect case uh, for for sequential testing, uh, I think. So, how would you go about, uh, uh, yeah, validating this and and testing if this is a reason if it's big enough? Yeah, to stop? I mean that's that is exactly uh, one of the key use cases for sequential testing. And I didn't mention this, but like, I mean, let, let, let's be clear. I I don't mind <laughs> personally. I would just <laughs> let let the test go for four weeks and then see what happens. But business teams might might think differently. Yeah, and and. I mean, one thing I see a lot is um, 
people checking in on a test early on, right? Like you're a couple two, five percent into the sample and you're checking to see if anything catastrophic is happening. A lot of times I don't see people having like a good framework for saying, okay, what is catastrophic in this case? Like, is this, is this decline that I'm seeing? Is this significant enough to be concerned about? And the other thing you get out of sequential testing is a rubric by which to measure a decline early on. Um, and, and to, determine if that's a statistically significant decline or not, right? Like one of the concepts in, in, at least in my sequential calculator and many others is a futility boundary. Like, should you give up early? Um, and so, yeah, so in, in, in your case or in many others, right? Like being able to say, okay, we're, we'll plan the test. This is the maximum duration of the test, but we're going to check in on it early on 5% just to see if there's anything really extreme going on in the results. And, you know, hopefully you're using something like a decision plan up front where you can say, if we cross this boundary, then we're going to pull the plug or we're going to, you know, yeah. that's that's what we'll call a significant decline. Otherwise, we're going to keep going, even if it's, you know, down 5%. If that's not past our futility boundary, we're going to stick with it. Yeah, and I can imagine that it's quite difficult to include such a boundary in your calculations because it can be different for each test, right? I mean, it can be, um, of course, it can be revenue-based. If you go down 5%, then that's the, the boundary. But maybe my experiment is not uh, about revenue at all. Maybe it's about newsletter subscribers. Then you might be, okay, we're not necessarily losing money, so it's it's fine if it goes down 10%. So that's uh, that's actually a really good point. There is a... Confession time. There, there are many different ways to do sequential testing, and if you start reading the literature on it, um, it's it it becomes a little overwhelming because, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, like all stats literature, there's like all these names that could Pocock, you know, Brian Fleming, and 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 I can't even pronounce some of the names because they're they're very foreign to me. But, um, you know, all these people have come up with different methods of approaching sequential testing. Some of them are more conservative than others. and those who are providing calculators have actually made some decisions about how conservative those methods are going to be. I actually hope to, at some point, allow someone to shift those parameters a little bit to take something that's more conservative or less conservative in terms of their approach to the decision boundaries. As of right now, it's kind of fixed. I have uh, have been pretty transparent about like how those parameters are set. Uh, the, those are fairly technical details in the test design, but like it's good it's good for us to know out that there are just like when you're designing the test and you're saying, okay, what's my, what confidence do I need? What power do I need? And like, what's my MDE that there's, there's a lot, there are a lot more parameters to your test that you can configure to say, this is how aggressive my decision boundary needs to be. And usually it ends up affecting the shape of it. And, and I realize we're talking about this kind of abstractly piece <laughs> if you're just looking at <laughs> yeah. uh, one of these decision boundaries and could kind of point to it. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of, like you said, um, you do need a pretty diverse uh, toolkit to approach these things because the problems are different and your risk levels are going to be different. Um, so yeah, and so uh, for people to need uh, specifically your uh, sequential test uh, uh, calculator, uh, what kind of data do they need to have um, as, as input? There's only one thing you need to prepare that's in excess of what you normally need for just a, a normal fixed horizon test, and that is you need to plan out the number of um, of check-ins or the number of analyses that you're going to do on the data, right? So um, I usually plan something that's like, you know, check in like once or twice a week on the data. 
Um, and, you know, usually the reason you're doing a sequential test is, is because uh, you're looking at a pretty long test horizon, like something like three, four or five, six weeks or whatever. And so a sequential test can help you get to that, to an answer more efficiently. But yeah, so uh, other than that, it's, it's your alpha, which is one minus your confidence level. It's your beta, which is one minus your power or, you know, vice versa, however you want to look at those. Um, it's your base conversion rate the base rate that you're building off of, um, or your mean, if it's a continuous metric. By the way, my calculator does not yet support continuous metrics. Um, so like, like that's revenue, right yeah. now. Yep, like revenue. Yep. Uh, we'll, we'll get to it eventually. Um, but yeah, base rate, you need the minimum detectable effect or minimum effective interest or effect size or however you want to title that one. Um, and your tails. And... Um, you know, you, you actually get a fairly different test design if you select two tail versus one tail. Um, I know that's probably a topic we could chat with on our nerdy selves about all day. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone wants to talk two tail, one tail. Um, but yeah, normally I go one tail. If it's two tail, the boundaries look a little bit different. But um, beyond that, there are some optional inputs, right? Like you can, we have uh, support to put in your current traffic size um, for your test area, like how much traffic you get in a week, a month or whatever. And then you can kind of estimate how many days it's going to take you just some, um, it's just a utility function and you don't, it's not necessary, but it's helpful. Yeah. And, and is it possible? So can you explain to us why does it matter how often I peak? I mean, my test is going to run for four weeks. How often I peak is not going to change the results. So why, <laughs> why uh, is it? Does it matter uh, for the calculations uh, for for the um, uh, yeah, for the calculator that I I, I predetermine how often I peak? Um, so I will tell you right now, I'm going to fail at explaining this easily. This is one of those things that like. If you don't get it, it's really hard to understand and abstract. And then once you get it, you you instantaneously lose the ability to communicate that effectively <laughs> to someone who doesn't. It's just give it, it a just shot. happens, right? Give it a shot. Um, so there's actually a there's a, in in basic probability that you learn there's the probability of uh, a thing happening. Let's say like probability of you getting a heads if you flip a coin, mm -hmm. right? Fifty percent if it's an unweighted coin. Okay, but what's the probability of you getting the heads if you flip a coin twice? I should know this offhand, but there's a really simple calculation uh, for, for doing that. It's like, it, you know, it's like uh, it, it, it compounds. The probability of you getting the head, a heads compounds. Um, and it's the same thing in testing, right? The probability of you getting a false positive the first time you check on your data is with what, at whatever confidence level you're setting for your test. And that's actually kind of interesting to know because I, a lot of us think like you, you, you have to wait until the end of the test to check your data before you can assure your uh, false positive rate or assure that you have the right confidence level. But that's not true. You can you can have you like you can look at data after you've collected 50 samples and run a t-test on it. And if it says that, you know, you're 90% confident, you can be 90% confident that you you don't have a false negative there or false positive there. So that doesn't change. However, if you run that test then and then run that test in a week, you've just increased your odds of having a false positive, just like you flipping a coin twice. You know, your odds of getting ahead have, uh, have increased. 
Um, and so every t- every successive time that you run the test, and I realize like we're we're mincing words a little bit, like running the test can be considered collecting your full sample size, but running the test is also it's just calculating the test statistic, the z-score, the you know whatever your test statistic is. So every time you calculate that test statistic, you are giving yourself another chance at a at a a, a false outcome. Yeah. What I think I've done a terrible job of explaining that, what, but um, no, I think it was good. You know, you're going to fact check <laughs> this afterwards, right? What? <laughs> we'll, put, we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, this yeah. is the actual description. Yeah. <laughs> so, what, uh, where is it often, uh, even when people know this, where it goes wrong? I think, I, you know, I, I, I can't say that people make a ton of bad decisions, but I, I can say. That they're not contr- they're not controlling their error rates. They don't know which decisions are bad. Yeah. Um, the fact that there are error rates to begin with guarantees that we're going to make bad decisions at some point. It's a question of like the rate of bad decisions that you're making, or yeah. you know the the rate of your ignorance <laughs> in your decision making, and it, it goes to an unquantifiable or an unquantified uh, amount. Yeah. Basically, you need to determine how 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 comfortable are you with being wrong. Yeah. Yeah, and, and if you're if you're peaking, if you're not using a sequential method, or you're not doing something to control your errors, you're just not quantifying that precision in your decision making. So, um, so I, I mean, I would say the the biggest issue that you'll find is that people in making decisions early, well, for one, they're they're going to favor like. Um, I guess this is true in all sequential testing, but you're favoring large effects and you're probably inflating, like you're biasing your effect sizes upwards. And so where you may have a confidence interval of like, this could be a, a change from between 1% to 30%, mm-hmm. um, there, your, mid, your, your mean change is probably going to be higher than it actually is on average. Like if you were to say like, I'm taking 20 winners and the average effect size in these winners was 10%, if you've been using a sequential method, you've probably biased that upwards and it's actually much lower than that. Yeah. So, um, that's, that's going to be the case whether you're using a sequential method or not. If you're peaking, you're going to be responding to, uh, to higher effect sizes than actually exist. Okay. Are there, are there scenarios where you, where you would still say, please don't use sequential testing, just let the test run anyway. Yeah. Um, I mean, one example, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but if there's a, uh, some kind of uh, cycle, if if you, uh, if you if there's some cyclic data in your uh, right. in, in the behavior of your or your clients, uh, I can imagine that that might make sense. Where you expect, for example, different behavior in the first two weeks versus the second two weeks or something. Yeah, I think absolutely that's a consideration that you you've got to you've got to put the lens of like business cycles and seasonality and stuff over your data. That's not necessarily a, a reason, in my view, to not do sequential testing because, okay. you know, just because um, those cycles exist doesn't mean you want to ignore a really negative result, for example. Like, I think yeah. even even if you have tons of traffic and, you know, reaching sample size in a reasonable amount of time is not an issue. And in fact, you're like testing on smaller um, on smaller subsets of the data because you have so much traffic and you want to be able to run a test for a week because, you know, I, I do typically recommend people run a test for at least a week. You know, maybe even two weeks is probably preferable. So you get a couple of those at least short business cycles in. Um, but you still want to 
you still want to make, uh, you know, things can tank and do really, really poorly. And that can be evident early on. And so having, again, that having the statistical calculation that you can make early on in the test is still valuable. But you're right, like, if you haven't run a test for a week, you should think twice about ending the test early on a negative result. Because you may not have seen uh, a, a good cross section of your users, you may not have, you're never going to have a, a, a sample of future users, right? Like every time we sample users, we're assuming that it represents all users today and all users tomorrow. Um, but you do want to make an effort, and that's why, and that's why we'll try to run through a business cycle or two to try to get a more representative sample. So, yeah. And uh, well, you already already mentioned uh, that we can uh, discuss for hours um, uh, in the comments on um, on uh, one tilt versus two <laughs> two tails. And then, of course, we have maybe the even bigger uh, frequent twist versus Bayesian. <laughs> um, <laughs> this only works for frequent twist. Um, no, doesn't only work. In fact, um, so I use an R package um, to 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 make the application work, the sequential mm -hmm. calculator work. Yeah. And that R package actually supports Bayesian testing. Um, we're we're going to hit real fast, like the limits of my expertise with statistics. <laughs> Cause I, yeah. I, I have a, I have a couple books on Bayesian stats and, you know, as hard as it is to read a stats book to begin with. No, yeah, um, I, I didn't want to go into Bayesian versus, uh, versus frequent. I just want yeah, to know, no. is, is, is sequential testing uh, purely something that's limited to people doing frequent uh, experiments or uh, can, can we both benefit? Yeah, no, I mean, they, they do apply to Bayesian stats um, and there is support, again, in the R package that I use for it. Um, I, I don't grok it as well. Um, and I also know that, you know, there's a lot of my hard feelings is maybe the wrong answer, but there's a lot of <laughs> criticism about Bayesian stats um, in, in the way they present the statistics and the, and the way they sort of make, uh, make known the assumptions that are going into those stats. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, people will say that Bayesian stats are immune to peaking and that's, that's maybe glossing over some of the details a little bit, right? It's, it's not completely true. Um, you still do need to worry about uh, type one error rates. Um, they, you know, Bayesian st st uh, statisticians will say like, or people who are pro Bayesian, they'll say like the, the probability, you know, the test stat is valid all the time. Like it's, it's always, whereas in frequentist stats, that P value does not always tell the truth. Yeah. Um, they'll say that the stat you get from Bayesian is always uh, is always true, is always um, you know right. And again, I think that that pat that glosses over some of the um, the detail and the assumptions that are being made in Bayesian stats. So yeah, to me, it feels like uh, sequential testing is a is a good mix uh, between wanted to be the, the more rigorous method, which is frequentist in my, in my view, the more rigorous method, also something I, I grew up with. Um, this is what we use it uh, mainly at, uh, at universities when we ran experiments. Um, but also you want to, it, you wanted to make the whole process to make business sense, right? We're not applying this to uh, to just do science and figure out exactly what's happening. You also want to make business decisions here, and um, yeah. this is a good way to uh, at least capture um, those moments where things can go wrong 
in a, um, um, quickly if you if you if you're not careful, and then you're lo- actually losing a lot of money. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that, and, it, and it's it's funny to to say like sequential testing is kind of a way to get some of those um, the benefits that people tout from Bayesian. Uh, testing, but to do it in like the language and the format that you're, that you're used to. It's like the stats you grew up with, the frequentist yeah. stats, it's the stats you learned in college. Right? Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a funny way to look at why people do it. Maybe there's just a bunch of inertia behind it. Um, but I, I think I'm with you on that. And, and I, I certainly take some cues from the medical and the research communities that um, seem to overwhelmingly favor frequentist stats. Yeah. So what would you say, um, well, stop, stepping back a bit, uh, you, you said that we'd been, uh, you've been doing this for over 10 years now. Um, what do you, are, are there any insights you, you think you, you've gathered in those 10 years that, that other people, maybe in zero or in e-commerce in, in general, haven't picked up on yet? You know, um, one, I, I'm, I'm a little bit, cynical i guess (laughs) i've had too many i've had too many servings of humble pie uh to be too overconfident about any single one of my opinions but here's one of the things that sticks with me someone someone asked daniel kahneman um he's the the thinking fast and slow he's the 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 granddaddy of biases and heuristics right um someone asked him once if no if understanding the the biases that he did you know the the follies in human thinking if that made him more resilient to those biases. And, um, and he said, no, not, not really. (laughs) Um, and I think that's true of us in the Sierra community, right? Like we, we tend to look for ways to exploits, maybe, uh, uh, too loaded of a term, but we look for ways to speak to some of those biases and to like, to work within the system of human psychology. Um, and, you know, you would think that we'd be really good at sort of understanding how our own thinking is flawed. And I I think we're not. And I I think that manifests itself in myriad ways in the way we approach our work. Um, But one of those is sometimes we see what we, we, you know, we make emotional decisions. We live in a, in a world of data and we use that data like a, like a security blanket Right. Like it makes us feel good about the decisions we're making. But I think there's a propensity for us to make emotional decisions still and to use the data as a as a weapon to rationalize those emotional decisions. And I've seen it in my own work. I've seen it in other people's work where you take these hard numbers and these stats and and you just put enough spin on it enough of, a, of a, a personal interpretation on it i mean that's that's where a lot of like p hacking comes from and even if you like build up more and more sophisticated stats methods to uh to make your your to make your um conclusion seem more bulletproof like opinion still seeps in and um and i i think that's something we have to actively combat throughout our careers um, maybe babysit others, uh, as well. But I mean, that's my opinion is that there's way too much opinion in all the work that we do as much as we want to believe that, um, you, you know, we're using cold numbers to make decisions. Yeah. Yeah. There should be an app uh, that, uh, that warns you for all the fallacies that you're, uh, <laughs> all the biases that you need to draft. It's probably not there yet. Yeah. 
Exactly. Uh, well, at, in, in my experience, it, it does help if you uh, if you talk a lot with uh, uh, people doing the same as you do, um, uh, but outside of your company. Uh, the, the interest groups, um, of course, nowadays, everything uh, online, uh, maybe it's a Facebook group for you or Slack group for people doing zero uh, or meetup.com when, we, when we're back to doing that um, and talk to those people to, to figure out and, and discuss the experiments that you run with them. Uh, I think that, that always that helps me um, to, to figure those out or to get a hint at where I'm going wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's another thing that comes to mind. You talk about like insights that, um, let's call these opinions that I have that maybe aren't like universally (laughs) shared. That's maybe a safer way to, to present that. But, um, I, I also, I like to say that ideas are a dime a dozen. Um, you know, in, in CRO, we learn a lot again about those same biases and the tactics that work and the, the heuristics that we should evaluate a page with and like, you know, the, how, how design works and how, how colors work, how words work and, and the, the impact they have on consumers and people as they experience um, different user interfaces. Um, but at the end of the day, right, like our, our ability to use those things to actually make a difference to business metrics is pretty bad. Right? We, we need to know that stuff and it makes our ideas better, but going from a 25% win rate to a 35% win rate, there's still a 35% <laughs> win rate. Yeah. It's, it's still seven worse than just flipping your ideas, coin. Yeah. Seven out of 10 of your ideas are still not good. So I like, again, the humble pie that I've eaten over the years, I have to remind myself constantly whenever I hear someone sharing an idea that I think is absolutely terrible, right? Well, poorly reasoned, like just like in bad taste, like I have to remind myself that, you know what? My ideas aren't any better. I, I've, I've, I've put my weight behind stuff that I thought like was sure to win and flopped, made no difference. You know, yeah. like, we're just, we're just not that good at finding the solution the first time. Um, not to say that it's not worth putting in the hard work to learn about what tends to work, what should work. At the end of the day, our ideas just aren't that great. And so like when I when I find myself arguing with other CROs about like what what tests should we move forward with or like how should we prioritize this idea? Like, man, it's it, uh we should just all like do ourselves a favor and acknowledge that like, yeah, we don't know. Yeah, Yeah, we don't know. So I have a, I have a statement for you then. Um, uh, If you, if your win rate is uh, 35% or up, um, you're not testing enough. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, most of the organizations that I work with aren't testing enough because once they have learned to flex that muscle really well and really quickly, they don't need a, they don't need a consultant or an agency to come in and like show them how to do it anymore. Like they're, yeah. they're beyond us. So, I mean, it, that's just a, yeah. Um, that's just, those are just the problems that I work with on a daily basis. But yeah, I mean, the mature organizations, those that run a lot of tests, their win rates go way down, yeah, way down one in 10, maybe even less than that. Um, and that should tell us something, right? <laughs> Yeah, I think I think the the public number uh, booking booking dot com always uh, uh, used in their presentations is one in ten, um, and I know from uh, from Microsoft they do all these automated tests, right, so on their on their Bing search engine, and it's like one in in a couple of thousands <laughs> uh, experiments that actually move the needle upwards. And I've I've heard um, 
people like Ton Whistling uh, say on stage that, you know, our ideas are so bad that we shouldn't even bother with them. Like the future of CRO is letting the machine <laughs> try every single iteration of an experience and, and just let the machine do it because, you know, we, we are limited in what we can think might work. And uh, we bring a whole we bring a whole bunch of baggage behind yeah. us um, of assumptions that may not be right. And so just, you know, letting letting a machine take care of design is the future of CRO. I don't know that I agree with that. Again, I do think it's worth putting in the hard work to understand how brains work, how interfaces work, what's uh, what's good design, what's bad design. Um, what tactics we should try, yeah. what other people have tested and works well. I do think it's worth like educating ourselves on that. But yeah, I mean, especially the more tests you run and the more you reach that local maximum, which is like you're, you're actually optimized, the harder those wins uh, are to yeah. find. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I ran an um, experiment uh, with that same Don Wessling a couple of years ago with, uh, uh, it was then called Sentient AI, uh, this mm -hmm. this um, evolutionary algorithm AI, <laughs> AB testing or multi, multivariate testing uh, platform. And, um, uh, but the, the thing is that uh, you, you can, yeah, sure. You can, you can feed it all these, basically it's, it's like a multi-arm bandits uh, um, um, uh, algorithm um in, in in separate stages um but the, the limitation those those uh, machines still have uh, i think is that uh, of course of course they can find the optimum solution of the variant you give it but where's that input come from <laughs> do, yeah. do you think do you do you think we will still as zero people will still be valuable that way so we can give the machine maybe the machine can figure it out and and do all that and uh, completely automate it but do we are, are we still needed in the future <laughs> uh yeah. to, to figure out what the machine is going to test to begin with and and the more the more power you give to that machine to just operate independently, right? It's like, it's literally going to move every pixel to every point on the screen. <laughs> and, and it may learn very quickly that way, right? Of like what works and where that pixel needs to be. But somebody out there is going to see, you know, Greek letters where in, in, in an English setting, right? Like yeah. somebody is going to see something that doesn't make any sense that a human could very easily say, uh, hold on. No, no, no. We're not going to try that one. Uh, but operate within these boundaries. So I, yeah, I don't, I don't see like the machines taking over completely anytime soon. They're just not smart enough to get like, get the first couple iterations, right? Like they, they just, they have to be trained and learn. I don't know, maybe there's some solution out there where you can have like the trainer set internally that helps the machine, like learn some basics. And then from there it can just go wild. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah, but I also I also wonder, like, here's the other limitation, right? The um, you have to be really, really, really confident that the metric you're optimizing for encompasses everything that you're interested in, and that's even a problem today in our decision making, yep. right? Where you may find something that's ugly and hideous, and you know, evokes a like. A, a gut-wrenching response from people, but it's super effective at drawing clicks or getting people to check out or getting people to accidentally enter in their credit card information and buy. And you're just not measuring the metric of like, how do they feel when they see that? Or like, what's their likelihood of coming back six months from now to buy from yeah. me again or next year? 
uh, to buy from me again. So whereas those metrics are all, always seem to be just a little out of reach and we want to acknowledge them and use them in our decision-making models, um, if you just set a machine to optimize for that stuff, it's it's not going to take every data point into account. I don't know. Yeah, you probably, and that's, that's what a lot of zeros are struggling with, you probably want to optimize for lifetime value, but that, that's not a metric that you can often, you don't have that available in Google Analytics or whatever you use to analyze yeah. your A-B tests uh, for. So you have to settle for proxies like conversion rate or average order value or uh, revenue per visitor or whatever you, you're uh, doing it with. But it, it's, it's very short term uh, what we're optimizing for right now. Yeah. Or, or what if you're like a, what if you're a luxury brand, right? And like, just hey, you only luxury have five clients. And like the, <laughs> yeah. And the, the feeling of it, the feeling of what you're presenting is like every bit as important as the, the, um, the action that the user takes, right? Like you, you have to prioritize how people experience your brand. And if you just run a test on conversion rate, like that's not what you're necessarily optimizing for. Yeah, and and so if you're listening to this, this is basically the the, the survival instinct of two people working in zero, trying to figure out how our job can still exist in ten years. <laughs> <laughs> We're desperately looking for <laughs> for ways to figure out. Okay, this is not going to happen. This is, <laughs> machines can for never all these replace. Arguments and discussions. I mean, how many of us have looked at our? How many of us have tried to dictate something to our phone? And like, I don't know about about you, but like for me. Uh, you know, there are certain words that every single, like every time I say the word C-O-M-E, you know, come on over here, it'll say cone. It'll write down cone. (laughs) Even when I'm typing it in, cone, every single time. Now, every time I see that, I'm like, yeah, no, the the machines aren't coming for us anytime soon. We're good. We're fine. I have that on uh, my main frustration that that pops up uh, right now is that uh, I think it's uh, mainly LinkedIn when I try to reply to someone uh, on the message that they sent. I think it's even like the, the public post and I try to add mention them. And then there's all this big list of people that have the same uh, starting letter, but it's not the person that wrote this post. <laughs> this post. I'm like, that should be the, mo- the most obvious one, right? Why is that not there? We're safe. So no, we're, we're, we're all safe. We're safe. <laughs> the next 10 years, we're good. Yeah, very good. Um, so uh, back, back to you, uh, your uh, your uh, calculator. You just uh, released uh, version two. Uh, what's going to happen in the next uh, 12 months? Is there going to be a version three? Is there already a, a roadmap? Um, I do have sort of a, a backlog of ideas and features and stuff that I'd like to work in. Um, I'm really excited about some of the things that came out in B2, that, some stuff to geek out about. Um, but yeah, next 12 months, um, I do want to put in support for continuous metrics. Um, it, it's not that hard. It's just one of those things that just takes that takes the time to do it and kind of reframe everything and then working that into the, the user interface. Honestly, for me, though... Um, I didn't, I didn't set out to like build a, this tool set. I, I kind of set out to just understand things better and it took me to, well, I need it. I need a tool yeah. to be able to do what I want here. Um, yeah, scratching your own itch, but that's, that's a great, great way to start, right? Yeah. And I think there are a number of other tools, um, that could be valuable in our space. I mean, one of the things, um, one of the things that I've learned is that simulating data is it can actually improve your decision making. 
if you can see the way scenarios play out, um, you can you kind of you kind of see the impact and the and the weight of what you're doing. Um, I think back to um, in fact, simulation was one of the ways that I got into this in the in the first place. Is I wanted to know what happened when people peaked. <laughs> I wanted to know what the actual impact of peaking was. Yeah. And um, the only way I could figure out how to do that was to like simulate a bunch of data and look at different scenarios and like what happened if someone peaked after like fifty percent of the sample versus after ten percent of the sample. I'm like, I actually thought there maybe was like. This is how dumb I am. I thought there was maybe some way that like you could have like a rule of thumb on how to peak without messing up your stats. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. And <laughs> that's not the case. Don't do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot, there's some tools and, and stuff that we could add in to different calculators that would give people an, an ability to simulate data and, and see how those things play out. Um, I also, pers- from a personal perspective, next 12 months, I do want to get through those Bayesian books. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've read so many articles and like, I don't know, I'm, I'm just thick, thick skulled with this stuff. But like, um, yeah, I, I, I want to be able to give you a clearer answer on um, how you use sequential testing in Bayesian stats next year. So, yeah. Good. So, so to continue on that, any any other things you're reading or uh, what we tip for our, our uh, listeners uh, to develop themselves in this uh, this area? Um, yeah, a couple of things. Um, I you know the the number of bloggers and content creators out there has just blossomed in the past five years uh, in terms of experimentation. If you go on Medium. And even if you only do like a free subscription, the amount of A-B testing content on Medium is huge. I get a weekly digest and there's there's new articles every week from people that I've never heard of. Um, you know, the a lot of like more common experimentation blogs are on there. Uh, Netflix does their stuff on Medium. Um, so I'd say like go subscribe to, uh, you know, a couple topics of interest on medium and see what comes out on a, on a weekly or daily digest. Um, I, the other thing that I think is really astonishingly good, um, Alex Burkett, uh, over the past year has been building up some of the content on his personal blog, alexburkett.com. And, uh, his stuff is really good. You know, it's really thorough and well thought out. And like, you know, he, he, he comes at it from someone who has like learned in the trenches, Um, so his, his, his blog is a great place for someone to actually get started today in understanding AB testing. because it's really, really spans the breadth. Um, it's comprehensive. Nice. And, and what does he do? He's a serial specialist, right? What is he doing today? He, I think he's doing his own, <laughs> he, he's doing his, he's like a, a freelance, um, today. He's kind yeah. of doing his own company. Um, But he was, he's been a, he's been a writer. He worked for HubSpot. He worked for CXL. Um, I think he did a bunch of content for CXL and then he's, he's just, um, yeah, he's been putting out great stuff. Speaking of people, um, who should we invite for, uh, for another podcast episode? Mm. Uh, have you spoken to Matt Gershoff? Not yet. Okay. You need to get Gershoff. Don't tell him <laughs> I told you that. Um, No, Matt, Matt is great. He, he owns and runs Conductrix. He's, uh, he's very present in the industry and uh, he's just a thoughtful, he's a, he's a kind, uh, kind guy, uh, as, as, as rough as he is around the edges, as prickly as he is around the edges sometimes. And he'll, he'll tell you that, uh, no, he's very, very smart guy, very willing to, um, to educate people. And, um, and he's, he's just a, a clear thinker about a lot of things. 
I don't know. Well, um, uh, I'll, I'll connect him and uh, I'm, uh, I'll tell him you told, uh, told him to come on the show. That's good. Yeah. Um, my fi- thank you so much uh, for for sharing this uh, this with us, uh, Merit. Um, things really interesting, and I'm definitely looking uh, forward to the Beijing updates uh, <laughs> of your tool. <laughs> um, my my final question for you: um, How often do you peek personally? What's your rule for it? <laughs> I don't know. Remember, peaking is just when you calculate the statistics. So, um, <laughs> no, I you know I use I I use the sequential method in almost every test that I design um, for clients, and uh, the only time I don't is when there's a stats engine with the test tool that I that I trust and that I think is putting out good stuff. So, um, there are some tools out there that I think have have good. Uh, stats methods behind them um but for the most part i'm doing all of it offline uh using my own calculator so so, so you, you can name names Let, let's just just not name the the bad ones but if there are good ones we want to know um you know google optimize has a bayesian engine um and they they're not completely straightforward with it and there are a lot of gotchas with their with their stats, but um, but I I tend to trust their engine. Um, I I trust Optimizely's engine as well. I, I trust VWO's engine. Um, it, I, you know, Con- Conductrix is great on the um, machine learning side, and and I trust their stats engine. The, the the problem with some of the others, it's not that they're it's not that their stats are wrong. It's that they're easy to abuse. Yeah. Right. It's like, it's, it's that like, you can't just, I think of it in terms of like, can I send my client there to get results? Like, can I share this with them and let them like interpret it as they want to every time? And I, I don't do that with target. Uh, I don't do that with anything that's frequentist that doesn't have some, uh, adjustment or or some sort of mechanism to stop them from interpreting a, a test statistic before the sample size has been collected. Fair enough. So, Thank you so much, uh, Merit, and I uh, hope to talk to yeah, you soon. you bet. It was fun. Thanks. Bye-bye. And this concludes Season 2, Episode 49 of the Zero Cafe Podcast with Merit Aho from Search Discovery. Next episode, I talk with Chad Sanderson, Head of Product and Data Platform at Convoy, about why they have built their own experimentation platform instead of just buying one, what the differences are between an innovation culture and an experimentation culture, and what you need to take into account when running offline experiments. Talk to you then, and always be optimizing.